everybody. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. 90-minute show today as we get you set for the Toronto Maple Leafs in New Jersey to play the Devils. Uh, pre-game show starting at 6.30. Ever been to Newark, New Jersey? I'm sure you have. I've flown in there. Yeah. But I have not spent much time there. I, uh, did you just get a haircut? Mm-hmm. Oh. Were you wearing a hat or How am I only noticing this now? I was not wearing a hat. I don't know. I, okay. I, I guess I was glasses. Oh. Maybe that's you. I don't wear <laughs> my glasses very often. Maybe sorry, you. Sorry, the whole thing is throwing me off. We don't need to get into a haircut discussion, yeah, which look, we've had before. But yeah, yeah looking, looking sharp, man. Thanks, man. Uh, I've been to Newark because the, the first time I ever went to New York City with my wife, we said, wow, prices are really expensive to stay in hotels in New York City, like in Manhattan. Look, there's a train that goes right there. So we stayed near the Newark airport. Let me tell you, that's not New York City, and that is oh, not... you stayed there. See, I've done the fly into Newark because the difference, like, transiting in from the Newark airport to downtown mm. compared to transiting in from one of the major airports, for there's sure. not much difference. No, for sure. But that is my entire Newark experience. Yeah, no, we, we stayed in a hotel in Newark near the airport, and no offense to... Newarkians, but like holy also cow. show me the city anywhere in the world where staying at the airport hotel is mm. a like a nice neighborhoody move i it's perfectly fine in etobicoke there's there's a nice hooters by the airport what what else is there there's like lots of restaurants there's yeah, there's lots of places to get a bite to eat and a drink at near Are Pearson there, though, Airport. Because I have stayed at a Pearson, like I've I've had a flight bumped overnight and had yeah. to stay at one of those. And like, I guess if you have a car, yeah. But I would imagine most people who are staying at an airport hotel are not doing so with a car. No, probably not. Honestly, I I couldn't tell you much about what's around the airport. I just know there's lots of airplanes Apparently, at the Apparently, you know airport. there's a Hooters at the airport. <laughs> well, well, yeah, that one you can see, like, on your approach. There's a big sign. Oh, I'm getting to the airport five <laughs> hours early, honey. Uh, I'll meet you and the kids at the at the gate. Apparently, Hooters are, like, they're not doing so well recently. Like, the, the people I just are not into Hooters as much as they used to be. Here's the thing. You build your entire brand for your restaurant around something that isn't related to the food, mm. and the food itself isn't very good. Mm. Unless they're going to sponsor the show, in which case they're it's the great. best wings really of the city. Uh, yeah, I yeah. I have been there. I don't really understand how they became known as like a wing spot when mm. they're just like, go to the grocery store and buy the cheapest box of frozen wings. Dude, and you know that's what, what they are? The most offensive thing on the menu to me in the one time also that I went to Hooters was the uh i love a fried pickle like love a fried pickle they do fried pickles there but they do them like in the medallions like it's like uh, bizarre it's like it's like you took like pickles that belong on a hamburger no, that's and a deep fried, fried yeah, them. that's a fried cucumber <laughs> at that point disgusting man no that's no good uh, fried here, pickle spears though is my jam yeah it's a it's a good uh it's a good appetizer good prank um tip yeah. for restaurateurs out there <laughs> okay don't build your entire restaurant branding and persona around something other than the food. Like, yeah. like you can have a gimmick, but Chuck the, E. Cheese's does pretty come, well. Yeah, are based around pizza. <laughs> I think it's based around like the big rat and the games. No, I mean I associate it with pizza. Oh, I think about the games. Maybe skee ball too. But yeah, yeah, and like like Dave and Buster's in the U.S. Yeah. You go and you play some Papa Shot. There's some and, in this country. Are there? Oh, yeah. There's oh, I guess a, there's one in Niagara. No, there's right? one in, uh, in my, my former stomping grounds in Oakville that I've been to. There you go. 
Um, but yeah, D and B's. Uh, maybe they. Maybe the the line here needs to be: you can market a restaurant on something other than the food to children and families. But if it's not a family appropriate yeah. place, you it's, better bring no. the heat with some menu items. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, shout out. Where to... were you going with it? Oh, New Jersey. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. In New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, uh, <laughs> ninety minute show today. We shouldn't waste any more time. Then we should get right into Ricky Tiedemann making his second ever spring training appearance and it didn't go nearly as well as the first he gave up a couple of runs in two innings of work a couple of strikeouts and a, and a walk in there the 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 two runs came off a carlos santana two run home run on the first pitch so i, I went back and I, I was in the car while he was pitching but i went back and watched his appearance uh gave up a, a number to to start his his uh, his appearance, a an infield single, and then first pitch fastball taken the other way by, by Carlos Santana, and then gives up a base hit to the third batter who was gunned out at second trying to stretch it into a double, and then kind of did settle down from there. But it, it should be noted that yeah, not only did his line score blow you away in his, in his first spring training uh, appearance against the Detroit Tigers, it was also the radar gun that was exploding during that that appearance i keep wanting to call it a start but it wasn't a start uh he had six pitches that were at least 98 miles an hour today he had none so i don't know if that's an intentional thing and this is this is not a a a, an indictment uh, about his health or or anything other than to say that yeah he looked a little bit different today than he did the first time around first time around not that i would have advocated for him to like break camp with the blue jays but it my antennas were up for like a similar spring to the one Alec Manoa had in 2021 where, yeah, he also didn't break camp with the Blue Jays, but you could see the scenario very quickly where he arrived and he only made three starts in AAA and then arrived in May. But yeah, in seven innings that spring, he struck out 15, no earned runs, one hit. He also hit three batters as well. So but no walks, right? <laughs> yeah, no walks. So yeah. You know what a hit batsman is? It's just a more efficient walk. Honestly. You're going to give a guy a free pass, do it in one pitch instead of four or five. Dude, honestly, like, yeah, if you if you are in a 3-0 count, and, it, and if peep, if you're, like, uh, trying to protect your, your line score, how it looks, because you, the HBP doesn't even show up. You have to, like, scroll down to find the HBP. Yeah, you should absolutely be plunking people instead of walking them. Looks way better. Yeah, uh, you probably lose some fans in your own clubhouse if you do that because <laughs> other teams might start to plunk you back if it's known that you're doing that thing. Um, here's my theory on Tiedemann. He saw a fellow, I guess Tiedemann's not a teen anymore, but he saw Andrew Painter, the 19-year-old flamethrower for the Phillies, uh, impress even more than he had and then undergo a mysterious elbow injury that it was only today after almost a week that they were like, you know what? We don't think it's a long-term thing. Uh, and maybe just, just dialed it back just a tiny, tiny bit. But yeah, when you're, uh, when Mitch Keller is lighting up the radar gun to a higher degree than you are, maybe, I don't know. It's, it's a second career spring. Tra- I'm, I'm really not willing to make much out of it. No, I do think that his, he actually got away with, um, and I know there was the number that you mentioned to start things off, but also when you only pitch two innings and you get away with two outs on the base paths, yeah. um, you like things maybe could have snowballed and been worse there. Uh, he was not the pitcher of note to me today at all, though. Yeah, it was Yusei Kikuchi. Ten swing and misses again. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and John Schneider hasn't said it 
officially. So, someone wanted him to announce him as the fifth starter officially. It's all but official now, right? And it would have taken something totally remarkable for him not to be slotted in as that fifth starter come the start of the season because of the money owed, because of the lack of options behind him, because of the made-up or not made-up injury to Mitch White. Who? Haven't, <laughs> haven't, haven't heard from him. Uh, slated to throw a 40-pitch bullpen session over the weekend, uh-huh. uh, this past weekend. That was per our own Arden Zwelling uh, a couple days ago. Did not see any sort of... Now, maybe that's because they didn't play yesterday, so there was no media. But I have not seen any updates as to how that 40-pitch uh, bullpen session went or if it even happened. Odd one. Yeah, no, he's not part of the plans to start the season. He has no options. So the option is, hey, you feel a little something in your shoulder you're going to be ramped up in such a way that you become an option for us at some point in the future. And maybe it it's as a long man out of the bullpen, but yeah, we're not, we're not, you know, exposing you. We're not DFAing you to send you to the minor leagues here. And you're probably not going to break camp as the fifth starter. Cause we're going to give the guy who has $20 million left over uh, the next two years, the shot. And I guess there was a scenario where there would have been a hue and a cry for somebody other than Yusei Kikuchi, considering how ugly it was at times, like most of the time last year. But no, and I'm not saying that any of this necessarily translates to the regular season. You mentioned the 10 swing and misses, and he's, he's what, thrown seven scoreless innings so far in spring. That's all well and good. Well the, done. The walks are still there, yeah. whatever, but he's getting swing and miss stuff. He's pitching with... The confidence to throw stuff guys will swing and miss at in the zone and around the zone. That to me, like results, whatever. He looks like a guy who is at least trusting his stuff a little bit more than we saw last year. Here's the other thing. And you and I talked about this off air. So I'm sorry for green rooming this. You, if you are a good team to the caliber of the Toronto Blue Jays, you don't need a ton out of your fifth starter anyway. Now, last year it was kind of amplified because Ryu got injured. Mitch White wasn't very good when he came over. Brios also struggled. And then you had Kikuchi on top of that. In general, if your fifth starter puts up an ERA around five and Kikuchi's came in at 519 last year, depending on how he goes about that, getting that 519 ERA, you can live with that. If it's three runs over five innings every time out, I think you're okay with that out of your fifth spot if the four guys ahead of him are pitching like you expect and your bats are there. You're not going to win all of those games, but it's certainly like if you told me right now, you Mm -hmm. say Kikuchi will start 25 games, he'll go five innings in all of them, and he'll have an ERA around 540, which is what three earned over five innings works out to. I would lock that in. But the key to that is going five innings. which Every he, single time. Which yes. he failed to do, right? Like right. that was, it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't, the ERA is not great, right? Like for a guy that was making $16 million no, last year. No, you prefer him to be good. <laughs> but I'm saying if you can, because what five innings every time out allows you to do is yes. not turn every start into a bullpen day that's unplanned so that then you're, you're basically they, every time, if Kikuchi and Barrios ever had a bad start the same time to, through the rotation, Charlie Montoya and John Schneider were having to manage the bullpen in triage mode for oh, yeah. days after that. Oh, yeah. And there were guys you you would find your most optionable relievers, and those guys were shuttled up and down. You just you cannot sustain. I hope Casey Lawrence had nexus. Exactly, right? Yeah. So that's – I agree with you. The bar is low. But the bar was low last year, man, especially mm-hmm. by the end. You just needed him to give you something he couldn't, right? Like, was incapable of doing it. I will say – 
that yes, I, I'm not. I again, I'm not saying that the seven scoreless innings in spring translates to the regular season. I will say though, if the opposite were happening right now, and he looked like the guy that by the end of the year you were like, holy cow, get this guy out of the rotation. I don't care if you have no other options; it can't be him because he's just murdering the bullpen. If that was the guy that we were seeing in spring, it would be a really interesting scenario to think about what the Blue Jays would have done for sure. And you would get into things like, well, what makes the most sense? Can you? Can you move him to the bullpen and get something out of that as like your your mop up guy to try to just get any sort of return on the the ten million this year and ten million next year? Mitch you, White might have been healthier a lot sooner than maybe we anticipated. You'd be talking about Mitch White. You'd be talking about Ricky Tiedemann. Hey, should you get his workload up? Um, <laughs> Drew Hutchison. Oh, it's not good that he doesn't look good anymore. And then you'd also be you know considering hey he was willing to you know, uh, waive his right to refuse an option to the minors at one point last year. Would he have to do that this time? Honestly, it could get to a point. It could have gotten to a point when you look at how the bullpen shapes up on paper right now, let's assume Mitch White starts the year on the IL. Um, I'm going to assume that. Yeah. They're the only guys with options really are the guys that you're not sending down. Yeah. You're not sending so, down Adam Simber. Say, uh, or Jordan Romano or yeah. Eric Swanson, right? Um, probably not Tim Meza, um, but like Jimmy Garcia, Anthony Bass, Trevor Richards, Mitch White, all those guys can't go down. I think on merit, you'd like Zach Pop somewhere in the bullpen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now he's optionable, but um, so you look at all this stuff, you would have hit a point at if he was really bad in spring or if he hits a point in the season where he's really bad again, and it's a choice between massaging the roster to keep trying to find a spot for Kikuchi versus exposing someone who doesn't have the upside, but who, you know, has a role Mm -hmm. um, to waivers to try to get them down to the minors. Like you, you would have had to be considering at some point, do you just eat the sunk cost? Yeah. Especially because like in real dollars, most of the money's been given out. Yep. 16 million. Um, and I, I, I'm not ruling out that conversation from happening. But like, it's great that we don't have to have it right now. <laughs> That's it. I almost want to, like, put him in bubble wrap. All right, we've seen what he's potential. you know. What do you I, end up throwing today, 50 pitches? It's something like that, yeah. He's, he's up to three innings now. and, and yeah, He threw 51. Yeah, well done. An efficient three innings of work. I will say, back to Tiedemann again as well, and this applies to Kikuchi because you mentioned the walks. It, the, the, the walks are fine if it's, like, one – Honestly, even like one an inning, it's where you get like the multiple on top of each other where you're like, oh, this guy has no idea. Like mm-hmm. he, he can't get back in the zone. The, back to Tiedemann who saw some hard contact today and got into some deep counts. He got the, the one walk was on a full count pitch and it was a, a fastball that was just slightly out of the zone. I will say that was encouraging to see from Tiedemann that he was not shying away from contact despite the fact that he wasn't throwing 98, despite the fact that he saw... Carlos Santana hit one out the other way. And you you do have the the little bit of fortune of you pick a guy off, which yeah, yeah. you get credit for. Sure. Um, but also that's an out on the base pass, not an out you're getting with your arm. And then you get another one in the field. Uh, but still, despite the the walk, despite getting hit a little bit, 24 pitches to get through two innings yeah. is, a, is a nice piece of work. That to me tells me that there was not any sort of panic setting in or nibbling setting in once, um, like once... You go up there and you're a 20 year old. And you're like, hey, here's my stuff. Yeah. And they hit it a little bit. He didn't shy away from it. He just kept to, here's my stuff. Yep. And and that is, I think, the the number one thing in in reading what the prospect writers have to say about Ricky Tiedemann and going through the stat line from his minor league year 
a season ago. It's not like abominable, the uh, walk per nine rate, but it's, yeah, you, that's the one area that you'd like to keep him under control. 3.3 uh, walks per nine last year across uh, three levels of the minor leagues. All right. So uh, things were uh, kind of up and down for the Blue Jays in spring today. Uh, things were, man, up and then very down for the Raptors last night in Denver against the West's best team, against the presumptive three-time MVP, Nikola Jokic, who looked pretty human. I mean, he almost put up a triple-double, but, like, for his standards, they they totally contained him. Jakob Pertl was working him over in the post. OG had the bulk of that assignment, especially early. Um, they were basically... I mean, their gambit was, A, that OG Ananobi has done a pretty good job on Jokic in the past. So if you have to go to that, then fine. But the other part of it was um, let's force the Nuggets to eat up some clock and try to get Jokic involved in off-ball actions to get him away from OG. Um, So you were seeing the Nuggets not get into their Jokic packages until like 15 seconds left on the shot clock. And he can still make a lot happen when he gets the ball on the block or at the elbow with, with that amount of time left on the clock. But because you had OG on him and OG's so good at, at denying the ball, getting to him because Pirtle was on Aaron Gordon. So you can switch that because Scotty Barnes was on Michael Porter jr. So you can switch that. Um, they had trouble getting their sets started and, and everything starts with, with Jokic for them. So um, Jokic averages 53 front court touches per game. It's by far the highest in the league. He was down around 40 last night. Yeah. The Raptors did a good job. Like you're not going to stop Nikola Jokic and a bad quote unquote yeah, bad yeah, game yeah. for him. He had 17, 13 and nine well, and was plus seven in a, in a five point and win. Jamal Murray was great down yeah, the stretch. He was lethal. Basketball. And then you got a couple, you know, there was the second quarter stretch of Reggie Jackson hitting a bunch of difficult shots on you, which whatever. Mm. Um, but if you can hold Nikola Jokic to a game where he's just, all you hope is that he has, he doesn't wreck the game. Yeah, he has less impact on the game than you're expecting. I laid out all the stats yesterday I about know. his season. It's like, okay, just make him not an astronomical usage player. <laughs> and they did that. Yeah, they, they cut his front court touches like by a quarter. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, they had no answer for the referees. Okay. Or Jamal Murray. Uh, Jamal Murray, but it was specifically uh, the men wearing the gray. So, I mean, it, it does start, honestly, before... Um, the play that got Scotty Barnes ejected because Nikola Jokic makes two free throws after I, I I I don't think it was obvious one way or the other, but a challenge that Nick Nurse loses and that ends up giving the Nuggets the lead, and then all the insanity that followed from that. There was not another field goal made the rest of the game. It was all free throws, including yeah three. That's what we all tune in for, right? A lot of free throws, and obviously the the most notable thing was Scotty Barnes being ejected, and you. We don't know exactly what, what was said. We have a pretty good idea, I suppose. And and Scott Foster said that he questioned the integrity of the crew, which may, leads you to believe that maybe Scotty, you know, said that they were intentionally calling fouls against the Raptors because, I don't know, because of the we the other. I, I will say that that game, the way it finished, did play into a lot of Raptors truther, internet, Twitter stuff. Sure, like, but they, like... I don't like dealing with that stuff anyway, but I do think the best thing I can say, the best context I can give for the officiating down the stretch of that game is it's really hard to get me to tweet about the officials during a game because you can't control it. And I would much rather focus my energy and my analysis and even my goofy tweets on stuff you can control. 
if you're the Raptors, like, yeah, after that game, they're frustrated in the moment, but they're not going through the tape in their practice today looking at calls the refs did and didn't make. They're focusing on the stuff that they can control. And so I don't like to go down that hole. Scott Foster completely lost the plot of that game down the stretch and made it about him, which is like rule one. If you're a referee, if you're an umpire, if you're whatever, um, like the fact that everyone knows that that was Scott Foster and, oh, it's the uncut gems ref. And like you are not supposed to be a part of the story of any game ever. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's just it. And I thought that he lost the handle on that. I thought his ejection of Scotty Barnes was, again, without having been there, was certainly quick. And the fact that nobody, player, opponent, or other officials around them when that happened like everyone was caught off guard. Mm-hmm. Mike Malone, even the Nuggets coach, commented after the game about how lucky they got down the stretch. And it yes. was kind of like with a tongue in cheek smirk, like he was commenting on <laughs> Scotty Barnes getting kicked out of the game in a huge moment for one technical foul, not a double tech. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a crock. And then we do the whole thing after, which is, I mean, I love the the guys who run the, the PBWA. And I know that we do this for some level of accountability, but the whole Scott Foster talks to a pool reporter after the game, but like you get two questions and you're not allowed to answer follow-ups. And the the explanation from the ref is always just, I made that call because I made that call. Yeah. Like, come on, man, get out of here. The, but okay. And all that is true. And I agree with, with all of it. It also should be said that the Raptors were trailing at the time that that took place. Right. Like, and, and had blown, oh, yeah. had blown a lead. Like, played a spectacular, spectacular game and kept in check the MVP this season, a guy that's impossible to keep in check. You can go back and you can pick a couple points. And this is, again, this is why I don't love doing the ref analysis because any game that's this close, you can go back and find two, three, four different things you could have done better to not even have yourself in that situation where that made the difference that it made, right? Mm -hmm. You can go back to the Raptors with a couple minutes left in the second quarter are up by 10. I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is, maybe the best half of basketball we've seen from the Raptors, Mm -hmm. if not all season, certainly since the trade deadline and since they got pieces back. And then they have turnover after turnover. Turnover, that 10-point lead in a snap is a three-point halftime lead. Uh, There's a stretch in, I can't remember if it's late third or early fourth, whichever point um, Jokic takes his sit. And yeah, they won the non-Jokic minutes on the night by two. You got to win the non-Jokic minutes by more than two. Mm -hmm. uh, Because guess what? You're not going to win the Jokic minutes. You can pick a a bunch of stuff. And then again, they didn't score field goal down the stretch at all. And then we're used to seeing this, right? And they get outscored by 10 in the fourth quarter and they give up 35 points. Mm -hmm. It it should be said, the leader of the Western Conference. Got it. Good, good Nuggets team. But this is a routine thing with this Raptors team, even, you know, against inferior opponents that those fourth quarters are a grindy grind, right? And yes. and finding offense, I get it. Is it because the offense turns into isolation like half court almost entirely in the in the end of these basketball games? This is a routine problem for this team is closing out basketball games. It's not really isolation like it, they do do that, but that's not really the issue. They do that in large part because they don't have guys who can create advantages in a, a slowed down half court. Like it, all we've talked about for like two years now is what's the formula? Well, it's defend like hell, be the best transition team in basketball. And if you can get even a passable half court offense, you'll be okay. Um, but when you get into those situations, it magnifies those half court offense issues. And you see it on a night like last night where Denver's not a, a bad 
defensive team or 12th on the season in in defensive rating when you uh, filter out garbage time. But here's a stat for you. I'm not using the NBA's clutch definition because I I prefer to use um, a site called PVP stats, which bases leverage on win probability. Mm. So in high leverage and very high leverage situations this season, the Raptors are outscoring only Houston and San Antonio. Yeah. So what's that? That they're unclutch. It's, Again, it's the we've talked for two years about how this isn't a great half court offense and their path to winning a lot of games is survive that mediocre half court offense by being really good at everything else. Mm -hmm. But when you get into a one and two possession game in the final couple minutes and an opposing defense locks in and the transition stuff really isn't there because you're having timeouts and free throws and stuff like that. Are they 29th? Like is Houston the worst half court offense and the Raptors are the 29th? Or is it now exacerbated by the the clutch thing? Because well, no, if it, I'm is it, it's exacerbated by the fact that defenses are actually like locked in, and your mm-hmm. transition opportunities dry up a lot in mm-hmm. clutch situations. Like because of timeouts and the increased foul rate and the increase in attention to detail from opposing teams, and you're not playing against bench players, you're playing against starters. All that stuff conspires to make late game situations more half court oriented to begin with, and then those teams are like actually trying on defense. Um, instead of like you're not catching teams flat-footed and not trying um, the Raptors dropped from 26th in half-court offense in all other situations to 28th mm. in those situations it's not a it's not really a clutch thing it's just that when you're a bad half-court offense it becomes painfully obvious when the other team starts locking in yeah which and that, guess what's going to happen in the playoffs? I was just going to say that's like entirely how basketball games are played because guess what yeah, the attention to detail, the attention to defense changes quite a bit between games 1 through 82 and then 83 and beyond. Yeah, at least the teams that you're jockeying with uh, for those play-in spots are all not great defensively. So mm. um, that's something, I guess. Washington's 20th, Atlanta's 21st. Well, and again, this goes back to to relitigating the Masai Ujiri comments after the deadline where he attributed so much of what's happened to the Raptors to luck. Or not so much, but did mention luck as being a factor, no doubt. Sure, man. I guess when you you talk about the, the these close games and the results that routinely go against you, but yeah, if there's methodology to why those are happening, that that seems to go beyond luck. Also, if part of the like if the way we're quantifying luck or one of the ways we're we're contextualizing it is, hey, do you have all your main guys together mm-hmm. at the same time for any stretch of time? Well, guess what they've had for the last four games as they barely beat Chicago in a game they more or less tried to give away in the fourth lost the game to Washington where that's one of the worst transition defensive performances I've ever seen uh, from this Raptors team and then yeah you bounce back and beat Washington awesome and then you squander one like that well was, that, that game shouldn't have gone to overtime though the way they know they, they, they squandered it the fourth quarter it shouldn't have and then last night you you know that could have been a very signature win for you and something that Nick Nurse can point to down the stretch of we just beat the best team in the Western Conference on their court in the middle of a long road trip like that could have been big and it's not at the end of the season you're not going to look back and if you don't like if you don't dive into the context you're not gonna be like oh five point loss at Denver that's fine Mm. like they covered the like they were seven point dogs. They they did what they were expected <laughs> to. Um, by the way, I had a lot of tweets at me about whether Scott Foster was uh, trying to nudge the spread or something like that. They didn't. Co- Denver didn't no. cover, okay. so it's not that. Maybe look at the over under. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a a tough little stretch here of 
they're two and two over those games kind of come away feeling you should be at least three and one and one of the both of the wins that you had should have been more convincing ones and I again this just goes back to when you're an average team you're gonna have these ups and downs and some days you're gonna look good and some days you're gonna look bad and then some days like last night you're gonna look good and it still doesn't matter because Denver's a much better team than you and you unravel when a couple breaks don't go your way yeah yeah or I say breaks uh, when a couple of things don't go your way because Scott Foster being Scott Foster is not a not a break. But hey, all those kids in their Scott Foster uniforms uh, in Denver got to uh, see a, a performance from the guy they paid to see. Yep, uh, good for him. And yeah, we shouldn't know Scott Foster's name, but we do. By the way, Nuggets now seven games up on everyone else in the West. Yeah, oh, they're 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 cruising. Although I, I wouldn't pick them to come out of the West. Uh, and I don't think Vegas would either. I think the Suns are probably the favorite. Yeah, uh, if you've watched, I mean, we talked about the KD yeah. stuff a little bit yesterday. It's uh, pretty remarkable how how good uh, they look right now. And then, yeah, the West is just, like, the West is chaos right now. Mm-hmm. Eight games separating second and 12th. And the Raptors are going to play into it uh, because they got back-to-back games against the LA teams. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. And then Denver again. Yep. Yeah, back at home. All right. Uh, Leafs. In New Jersey to play the Devils and Timo Meyer tonight, who's making his home debut. We'll talk to Frank Saravelli of dailyfaceoff.com. Next is the fan drive time continues. Ben Annis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 5.9 the fan. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Toronto Maple Leafs pregame coming your way at 6.30. Leafs in New Jersey to play the Devils. Ryan O'Reilly has had surgery on that broken finger. He will be out four weeks. If, in fact, he misses exactly four weeks, he will return to the Toronto Maple Leafs with six games to go during the regular season. That's no good. Colby Armstrong told us yesterday you need nine games. Yeah. So he said 10, and then we negotiated him down to nine. <laughs> Six is fewer than that. So maybe uh, by game four of the postseason, he'll be uh, fully entrenched. He'll be flying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk to Frank Saravelli, president of Hockey Content, dailyfaceoff.com. How's it going, Frank? Pretty good. That would uh, Six games would give him a total of 14. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a hell of a lot more than Nick Felino got last year, this or a couple of years ago, the seven he played and the measly four playoff games. Yeah, and that was, I mean, everybody's mind went directly to that when when he left the game in Vancouver on Saturday, and then when it was fair, enough. but also unfair. Yeah, well, and, and you know what? Here's where I wanted to start with you, Frank, because we saw the Bruins. You know, they they put Taylor Hall on LTIR, and 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 who knows if he's able to return for the postseason. It's pretty serious stuff. And then they go out and get Tyler Bertuzzi. Like immediately as a result of that, I wonder if if this injury had happened before Friday, whether the Maple Leafs and I know it's 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 the the cap hit for O'Reilly is under two million bucks, so you don't have a ton of wiggle room. But do you think the Leafs do something with his money if he's on LTIR before the deadline? Probably not. I don't think it changes the equation all that much because you still need to account for him coming back to play. And even those six games, it doesn't sound like a lot if that's the case. You want him from a pure chemistry and comfortability factor for everyone involved to get him active and playing as much as he possibly can. 
Uh, we saw Michael Bunting also uh, knock down the lineup to the, the the fourth line, and that's where he'll be skating today uh, outside of couple of guys who uh, do uh, pretty well racking up the points in, in Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, who he's enjoyed playing with. Um, this is a free agent year for him as well, Frank. Like, and we also we heard discussions early in the season about him talking extension with the Maple Leafs. Those have uh, since died down. What do you mm-hmm. think Michael Bunting's free agent market is, especially if he doesn't finish the season playing with those guys? I mean, it's. I think the truth is, it's still probably more than whatever the Maple Leafs can afford. Like mm. that's, that's sort of where like he, he, so I'm just looking at his numbers right now, 42 points in 63 games. And he's already basically at 20 goals. He's going to surpass last year's total of 23. Most likely he's been healthy as a horse, which has been, we just talked about O'Reilly. Like that's, that's a huge consideration. Um, he's got 119 points in 168 games and he's about to hit the free agent market. Like this man is going to be paid. He's probably somewhere in the five to five and a half million dollar range as currently constituted. And maybe you could make the argument that he deserves to get the six on an AAV. So you tell me guys, like where does that, how and where does that fit in? Not in Toronto. Yeah. Not on the fourth line, especially. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, whatever the number is, whether it's five or even if you want to get generous and chintzy and call it four four and a half, like, you know, to really game the situation out, like, I I just don't see any room for him. Yeah, unless he's going to turn into Zach Hyman, uh, and Zach Hyman's turned into Zach Hyman playing alongside Connor McDavid, who we'll get to in just a second. Yeah, Uh, probably not where you want to put your your money. Um, I, I know. Unless you're also making other changes this summer, if your team loses and you're saying, "Okay, we're we're saying goodbye to one of the big four. and in which case, I don't think spending that money on Michael Bunting is the solution because that obviously him at eight hundred k or eight fifty k wasn't uh, a part of the solution. I don't know that you just want to spend that same money on uh, another winger for that exact spot. I think the lesson would be you want to spread it around a little bit. Um, But from here, Frank, when it comes to how they manage Michael Bunting from here and what he can do to get off of that um, third and fourth line back to the first line, what are you, what are they looking for from him? What are you looking for from him uh, tonight and on Saturday? It's a really good question because I don't, I don't even really know how to answer that. Like what more can he provide for your team? Is it a consistency thing? Is it an effort thing? Mm. Is it a creativity thing? Like I, I don't, I, I don't look at his game right now and, and say he's missing X or he's, you know, he's not doing this well. Like what he's, he's sort of, this is going to sound funny to say he sort of is what he is. Yeah. And I think he's done what he is extraordinarily well like he's maximized and squeezed out almost every drop of what's in his game I'm not sitting here longing for anything and I think if you were to ask the Leafs heading into the 2021-22 season signing Michael Bunting on a two-year hope bet yeah that that you would have you know already gotten 105 points out of him and and 40-some goals, 42 goals, you, you, would have, you would have thrown a parade. Yep. 
Yeah, and and you know what? He made the bet on himself as well. To, that he apparently took less to come to Toronto. He did. And, and, I know that for a fact. Yeah, and it's worked out for him. If especially if he's getting the old five Sioux connection. Million. I mean, you can't say no to that. No, you can't. Well, speaking of the Sioux, uh, listen. Now that you bring it up, because yeah, Kyle Dubas loves his his former Greyhounds. Although he traded one away at the deadline in Rasmus Sandin, who has five points in two games. As a member of the yeah, Capitals. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. So Settle th- down. All right. Look, again, we, we talked about this last week. They got out in front of this. Mm. Look at the defense core that's currently assembled. Look at how many pieces are there. And then tell me where Rasmus Sandin was playing in the playoffs. Yeah, well, they said The nowhere. point is he wasn't yeah. unless, you know, three guys got hit by a bus. He wasn't, and he's playing big minutes in, in Washington right now and putting up three assist games. Good it looks him. a certain way. Yeah, good for him, exactly. He's and getting an opportunity he wouldn't have gotten in Toronto. For sure, and, and you're and, seeing... And the Leafs capitalized and got a first-round pick before broadcasting to the rest of the league that he was going to be a healthy scratch in the playoffs. On top of which, a guy who is kind of his peer and, and they came up and developed together and played a lot together and who pretty significantly outplayed him so far this year in Timothy Lilligren. Sheldon keeps talking about, like, he might be a healthy scratch in the playoffs once again. What did you make of those comments today? Because that one, I, I understand it more with Sandine, given the year he's had. But Lilligren's a guy that I'm not sure how much more he could have shown this year to lock down, you know, that fifth defenseman spot for this team. So is that more of an indication of what he hasn't done or is it more an indication of what the Leafs have traded for? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it means Luke Shen's in the lineup, right? But they did that with Labushkin last year and it didn't work very well. It didn't turn out the way they'd hoped. And Liljegren is a much better version of himself this year. I would agree. And I think there's like, there's been tangible development and, and growth that you can point to, but I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily as damning on him as it is they've beefed up this blue line. Yeah, well, uh, there's no debating. Luke Shen is a, as a beefier, uh, more... Like, uh, quite literally beefier. He's, we he's love a, the beef. He's a, he's a larger And I can say that being. being a rather beefy guy myself. <laughs> Me too, buddy. Um, so Sam Lafferty was a guy that was kind of like uh, under the radar acquisition before Friday's uh, trade deadline coming over along with Jake McCabe from the Chicago Blackhawks, having a career year offensively, by which I mean he scored 10 goals. He's the second-line center today, Frank, and I get it. Like, you're, you're down quite a few bodies. Uh, John Tavares is not going to play today, uh, despite the fact that he had a good night's sleep, apparently, last night. He feels great, and uh, he'll be good to go, I guess, for Saturday's game, uh, return engagement against the Oilers. So, the, uh, on the Lafferty front, we know he's super speedy. Like, is there any indication that there's more there offensively? I mentioned a career-high um in in goals this season like is there there a potential late bloomer there who's like a top six guy or is or is this yeah is this just you you got you got to try something somebody has to play uh second line center well this is when you find out right like i don't think there's a whole ton more there like he's he's already squeezed out four shorthanded goals which are tied for the league lead um and that's been a huge part of his 40 percent of his production this year um so, you know, I, I think in an ideal world, he's sort of in the, you know, 15-goal range when it's all said and done at the end of the year, which is not nothing, but, I you know, he's I don't think he's ever going to be a 25- to 30-goal scorer. He's, in some ways, a meat-and-potatoes player. Like, he's straight up and down. There's not a lot of flash and dash. There's hard work. There's elite speed. 
but there's not like this guy is going to dazzle you on a nightly basis. It's, it's more of, I think it's more of what you'd call playoff, you know, type of hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ilya Samsonov gets the start tonight. Matt Murray is going to get the start on uh, hockey night in Canada against the uh, aforementioned Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Samsonov, I know, hasn't been as as spectacular as he's been at the best moments of this season recently, but his overall numbers are pretty great, especially um, what you you got him for, by oh. which I mean you just acquired I told you. I've been saying it all year. I've been super consistent. Yeah, you have. Uh, 915 save percentage. He's among the league leaders in in five-on-five high-danger high save percentage. But, yeah, they're, they're going to alternate with a huge swath of, of days off here between – Today, obviously, and Saturday, and I, I get it. Matt Murray's only just returned, so I guess you, you got to get him into game action. It'll be interesting to see how they deploy. Give him an opportunity to hurt himself again. Well, this is it. So, Frank, like, how do you expect? Sorry, I, I couldn't help myself. I well, yeah. Listen, you you said what everybody's thinking. Like, how do you think the Maple Leafs will deploy these two goaltenders? And if it is like an alternate thing, aren't they opening the door for Matt Murray to win the job? And and if you're doing that, aren't you indicating to everybody that you want him to win the job? I, I just think you want as many goalies as possible playing as well as they possibly can. The fickle nature of the position, not just like year to year, but week to week, it seems like. And make sure that you're, especially now with the situation that Mary's in, having really not played a lot, mm-hmm. you got to get this guy as comfortable as he can possibly feel in the event that either Samsonov is hurt or falters and drops the ball that you can turn to Matt Murray in the playoffs and say, go. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think the position that they're setting themselves up for. And also really just to kind of keep Samsonov fresh too. Like his games played this year, they certainly haven't been overwhelming. He's at 31 starts, 32 appearances. By the time the season's over, he's probably going to end up around 40 ish, uh, maybe a, a touch higher than that. And I think that's a really good number to be at when you're thinking workload and and being prepared to play. So I, I don't view it as, you know, they want Matt Murray to, to grab the ball and run with it. I think, you know, if you were to inject some truth serum, like they're, they're probably as scared as anyone else is in terms of the injury history and what's presented itself this year, mm-hmm. that even if you wanted him to be the guy, I don't know how you could possibly logically – expect him to be able to be the guy all the way through an entire playoff run. No, it's true. And they wouldn't be the first team in recent uh, memory to ha- to use multiple goaltenders uh, during a postseason run. So he's got his work cut out for him on Saturday, though, uh, against Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers. So McDavid now up to 123 points, career high. The, the record for points in the cap era is uh, Nikita Kucherov's 128. And, like, uh, there, there's a few he games. He might get there by this weekend. It's ridiculous, Frank. Like, I don't know. Is, is there a way to contextualize this? Is is it, but is it possible we're watching, you know, uh, if not the greatest individual season in the history of the sport, like a top five one? It's definitely a top five one. And I would say that what we're witnessing is – this is the this is the conversation starter for whenever it's whenever he hangs up his skates and we begin to examine his legacy. Mm-hmm. This is the conversation starter for him being as good as Wayne Gretzky yeah. all time. Like I truly think that when Connor McDavid has done his career, he will stand alone, maybe not in the record books, but he will stand alone as the best player to ever play hockey. 
Yeah. Whew. I mean, is that is does it like the way that he's playing right now and the sustained excellence that he's had in his entire career? Does that seem like a far fetched idea? I don't. Well, especially when, yeah. I mean, I've watched a little bit of Wayne Gretzky's career, but I was certainly not watching hockey the same way then as I am now. And, and looking back at the highlights, there's some goals that yeah, Gretzky might have scored in the 80s there that uh, probably probably not goals this year. And I mean, especially if you do like the 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 inflation rate of of what points meant during that scoring yeah. boon when like the average save percentage was under 900. I'm pretty sure. No, was, yeah, I can like see in it. The 860s and 870s, yeah. like. You can do the math, and I'm not saying math. I'm saying eye test, math, everything. He he's the he's already the most highly evolved player of all time. But when you have a player of McDavid's skill set who determines, you know, one summer I'm going to become a better goal scorer <laughs> and hits 54 already, like what are we like? What are we witnessing here? Well, what we're witnessing is he's going to win his fifth Art Ross trophy this year, which only uh, five other players have have ever done. He's already in that territory. If he got one more, that's it. Then Gretzky's the only guy left in the in the crosshairs. Gretzky had and ten. He of, might do that too. He might. Gretzky had ten of them. No one else has had more than six. Connor McDavid, this by the way, twenty six. I, I still just don't think say. that he's actually reached the <laughs> full prime of his career. Imagine he played on a good team. Or a, a better, I know, that, I know. That's over the top. I know, I'm yeah. kidding. And, if only and, he could play goal. All oh, those Stuart Skinners, okay. Yeah, um, no, it's But incredible. remember when we were heading into the season or we were talking last year and I was saying, look, this this is a player who has set career highs in, in goals and assists and points and yet wasn't really in the Hart Trophy conversation. Everyone's like, well, you know, Matthews and 60 goals. Mm-hmm. I realized it was such a special accomplishment last year to hit 60, but did we overvalue the notion of hitting 60? And why, like, I, I was talking about this today with someone, why on earth has has there been not nearly as much conversation and buzz? Like, if I told you in September that we'd be sitting here on March 7th and Austin Matthews would have as many goals as John Tavares, mm-hmm. what would you have said? I would have said Austin Matthews got hurt at some point. I would have said, what a season by John Tavares. <laughs> um, well, he, and here's the thing, Frank, is like part of the answer is that there is a Toronto exceptionalism element where Austin Matthews setting the franchise record for the Leafs was a really big deal. I don't think as good as Connor McDavid is, he has a chance of setting the Oilers yeah. franchise record this year. That's a 92. Yeah. That's a bit of a, a high one. But he does have the chance to do something that no one since Wayne Gretzky has done. Mario Lemieux did it twice, but he was tied both of the instances that he did it. But lead the league in goals and assists in the same season the triple crown yeah that's something that hasn't been done outright since Gretzky and hasn't been done even with a share since Lemieux so I think you know Mario Lemieux when when we're talking about a guy like Connor McDavid who is in his eighth season in the league uh, yeah of course he doesn't have the the counting stuff and the number of Art Ross and Hart trophies that Gretzky has but I do think we're getting to the point where you know, you start having the Lemieux conversation because Lemieux didn't have the longevity of Gretzky, but he's almost maybe a better comparison point because once you start comparing eras and, and a shorter shelf life and things like that, mm-hmm. that's where Connor McDavid is at right now. And I mean, really, like I, I just looking at how many guys have won that many Art Ross or even three Hart trophies, it's already incredibly rare air that he's in. 
that was such a deft way of stick handling around everything that I just brought up about Austin Matthews. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that know, was Con- like, Connor was McDavid, not the only guy who's uh, good, with, good with a puck on his stick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and hey, you know what? Just, uh, just to point this out too, because I don't think it's been talked about nearly enough. We talked about the McDavid triple crown. Linus Olmark yeah. might set the goalie triple crown. Yeah. Save percentage, goals against average, and wins. This man is thirty-two, four and one this year. Yeah, it's wow. also leads all goalies in goals four. Yeah, so he's got yeah, that no kidding. too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Frank, uh, always a pleasure, buddy. Uh, we'll talk next week. Have a good week, guys. You too, Frank Saravelli, president of hockey content at DailyFaceoff.com. I don't want to take away Austin Matthews' heart trophy from a season ago, but I will say that Connor McDavid. There was a, a conversation at points throughout both of their careers that Austin Matthews was 1A to Connor McDavid's 1. Like, the separation between Connor McDavid and everybody is yeah, pretty large. It's quite large. And, like, you can you can go through last year and make the case for Austin Matthews to have won that hard, as I, as I did uh, at the time. And, you know, analytics-wise, yeah, McDavid kind of pulls ahead because he's McDavid. He's so far above everyone else. But I do think the importance of setting a franchise record for a marquee franchise in goal scoring, while also having a very, very strong, whether you look at the analytics, the counting stats, the fact that Austin Matthews is a two way force and one of the best faceoff guys in the league. Um, not that Connor McDavid isn't those things as well, but Austin Matthews had a heartworthy season last year. It's just Connor McDavid's kind of in Mike Trout territory where yeah, every year, Mike Trout should win the MVP. It's not It's not really close if he plays enough games, but uh, there is a voter fatigue element and a narrative fatigue element. And uh, yeah, I don't know. We're, we're going to be right back to Connor McDavid winning it again this year. So all's right in the world. Yeah, it's, it's hard to deny a man when he puts up 140 points and like 70 goals, which is what he might do. This he has 124 <laughs> points right now in 65 games. Yeah, also, it should not be lost also that he leads the league in games played and ice time for forwards. Like he's also among forwards, the league's iron man right now. Yeah. No, there's really nothing negative. You can say about him. Yeah, Maybe it's, it's like, like Nick kind of a lame coach in the Oilers. <laughs> All right. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk to uh former Toronto Maple Leafs goalie, former Tampa Bay lightning goalie, former hurricanes goalie, Curtis McElhaney, also host of the walls within podcast joins us next. The fan drive time continues. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 5.9, the fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Leafs and Devils pregame show coming up at 6.30 from New Jersey. Ilya Samsonov getting the start tonight. It will be Matt Murray on Saturday against the Edmonton Oilers. It will be a first round matchup between the Toronto Maple Leafs and Tampa Bay Lightning come April. Uh, our next guest played for both teams. He won a couple of stops, a uh, couple of Stanley Cups with the Tampa Bay Lightning. It is Curtis McElhaney, host of the Walls Within podcast as well. Curtis, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me today, you guys. Uh, thanks for doing it. Um, 
You know what? I, I want to start with the Lightning because they've lost five straight. This is a team that just benched its entire top line for an entire third period against the Sabres. And then the next game, they got absolutely destroyed 6 nothing by the Carolina Hurricanes. You know the guys within that dressing room. How do you think that impacted uh, their performance on Sunday? The, the fact that their, their head coach, who might be headed to the Hall of Fame and John Cooper, decides to call them out publicly and, and bench them for an entire third period? I'm sure it's pretty upsetting. I think, you know, the challenging part right now is there's probably a little bit of complacency leaking into their game. And they've been lined up with Toronto for, I don't know how many weeks that is now, for the better part of half a season. So you've still got 20 games on tap to finish out. So maybe they're just kind of mailing it in a little bit. I'm I'm sure it'll ramp back up. And obviously benching a top line like that will, will probably send a message that they need to get back on track. Yeah, and I know your your podcast talks about the the mental side of of sports as well, and I want I want to get to the goaltending uh, aspect of that. But I would have thought that a team that won two Stanley Cups, made it to three straight Cup finals, wouldn't need that that kind of a, a reboot. But but you do you believe that like it doesn't matter how much success you've had previously that that could always get through to guys who would get like not only is the head coach headed to the Hall of Fame, there's probably a a bunch of, of future Hall of Famers playing on that roster. I think so. I mean, any of these top teams, with the exception being Boston this year, that hasn't had a letdown at any point. There's always been a little bit of a skid. So Tampa's had some long seasons the last couple of years. So I don't know. It's it's probably uh, just one of those things you're thinking about it. And anytime you hit the three-quarter way of the season, it, it becomes a little bit of a challenge. But that's where some of these top teams will either reset and kind of continue to climb or just kind of level out so we'll see how it plays out but uh, they certainly have the personnel that's not a concern so having gone through runs like that when it comes to a coach and the timing of when to try to push those buttons and when those buttons kind of have to be tucked aside because you've really got to get ready for the playoffs and the you know the the kind of juggling and things around that it can be a distraction at some point um at what point in the season in your experience are teams in kind of okay everything's locked in let's head toward let's put our heads down and focus on the playoffs mode like we've got six weeks or so left here um is it two weeks out where where maybe a coach stops pressing those buttons is it around like is this the last time a coach gets to press those buttons before the playoffs click in or is it kind of i'd imagine it's feel locker room to locker room but what is your take on you know when you got to stop tinkering and decide what you look like heading into the postseason that's a tough one um (laughs) you know it's it's tricky to say because each team like you said is so unique and the group the personnel how long they've all been together tampa's obviously had a pretty pretty big core group that stayed together for a number of years now so and especially with Cooper having come up with some of those guys in the minor leagues, they they know each other inside and out. And mm-hmm. I think they'll continue probably to kind of reset here as we get towards game 70. So we've got about another seven, eight games. And then, and then you kind of, you need that group to just take over. And at that point it becomes the group that's going to make the decision that says, Hey, we're, we're going to make another push here. You know, that that's something where it's taken out of the coach's hands and that's what all good leadership groups do within these teams and organizations. So that will get put on that group, but I'm sure here in the next seven games or so, you'll kind of see John Cooper push this group and try and get them back to that level that they need to be at here in the next little bit. 
Uh, you saw this Toronto Maple Leafs group when they were uh, just starting to figure it out. I mean, after finishing dead last, uh, they, they dropped Austin Matthews first overall, scores four goals his first game. They're making the playoffs um, that first season, thanks uh, to you, uh, in part, during that, that regular season. And then they pushed the President's Trophy champions to six games. How surprised are you, Curtis, that here we are, now six postseasons later, and this team is still looking for its first postseason uh, series victory. Yeah, it's a little bit of a shock. I mean, the the drawback is it's the East, and the East the last five, six years has been incredibly tough to get out of. I mean, you've been running into teams like a Tampa or a Boston, and Boston's been good for the better part of a decade now, especially with that top line and, and the goaltending and um, all that. So it's, it's challenging. I... I don't know. I don't want to say it's going to it's going to be their year, but they've pr- certainly made the transaction that should help get them over that edge. Yeah. Well, and and you know what, going back to the the mental side of the game, they they've they've brought in um a sports uh psychologist to try and help this team to get over what might be a, a mental hurdle hurdle when it comes to the to the postseason. I mean, for a team, again, where, where the core of it has been through so many heartbreaks in the postseason, how difficult must it be to to try and eliminate those thoughts when the calendar flips to April and you're you're taken to the ice in game one of a, of a series against a team you just lost in seven games to? Uh, incredibly challenging. It's not made any easier by everybody up there asking the exact <laughs> same question. So uh, as those players are well aware of, on a daily basis, but you know, it's one of those things. I think if they're capable of kind of bursting that bubble and pushing through into that second round, all bets are off for me personally. That's kind of my look at it. And, you know, I, I think when I was in Tampa there, they had that upset after that incredible season to Columbus. And then we ended up lining up with Columbus in the bubble and we had that incredibly long game. And it just seemed once that game, we were on the right side of it. It was like, now we roll. And I feel the Leafs are kind of sitting in a similar situation is that if they can push through that first round, it's they can roll. Yeah. Uh, well, and you know what? The the two goaltenders, uh, one of whom will have the crease in game one of the postseason, haven't been around for the previous six postseason exits. When, when you think about um, the mental side of the game in this sport in particular, it feels like goaltending is, is, is just entirely separate from the 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 skaters um in that you're alone on an island that we can see pretty definitively whether you succeeded or failed how much a part of the game playing goaltender in the national hockey league is mental oh it's huge i mean it's incredible the amount of stress that gets put on those guys and i was fortunate to wrap up with vasilevsky and just to watch him be able to have maybe what most would consider an average night for him an off night and to be able to come back the very next day and shut out a team in a deciding game is just unprecedented. And, you know, if we look at the least two goaltenders this year, I don't know who they're going to swing to when it comes to the playoff time, but it is nice that they've got two capable guys that have gone on stretches at some point during this year. So hopefully one of them will kind of grab the reins and run with it, but it certainly doesn't hurt when you've got a two-time Stanley Cup champion in your locker room too. So You mentioned Vasilevsky's ability to kind of shake off any bad performance and bounce right back. Now, when you overlapped with him, you know, he was 26-ish, so not not super young, 
but still on his way up. Um, is that something that is innate to guys, or can you build that with experience? Can, can you train that into a guy with kind of the, the mental skills stuff off the ice? There's the million-dollar question right there. I wish <laughs> yeah. I knew. I mean, I would love to have the answer for how Vassy became so resilient and capable of going into those high-performance games and just being able to lock it down. And, you know, if, if we had that recipe, I'm, I'm sure we'd be selling it all over the place. But, um, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the environment that he grew up in and, and also the person as well. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that play into that. What do you make of, of playoff experience? Because there's a couple of guys on this Leafs team who have limited to none. Like they, they just went out and got a defenseman, Jake McCabe, who's never even played in really an important late regular season game, let alone a postseason game. They also have a goaltender in Matt Murray who's won a couple of cups, albeit it's been a while, and Ilya Samsonov has limited postseason experience. You made your first postseason start at the age of 35, and then you went into uh, the postseason, posted a 930 save percentage with with the Hurricanes. Um, what what do you make of the idea of, of postseason experience and, and how important it, it might be? I think as far as the games go, it, the game almost became a little simpler. It was a little bit cleaner game. Nobody really wants to make mistakes. So, you know, from my standpoint, I think a lot of the skill that we've seen in, in some of the regular season games almost gets taken out in the playoff game. So personally for me, it was, it was an advantage to play playoff hockey. I mean, you know, the flip side of it is you, you have all the excitement from the crowd, the buildup, and then you have the outside noise of, handling the media and and trying to manage that especially if there's an off night or you're down in the series by a couple games so um there are challenges but as as far as the hockey's concerned um the game almost becomes a little bit simpler and it it was uh it was an easy game it's uh kind of more meat and potatoes i guess if we call it anything yeah and the maple leafs went out and got a couple of meat and potatoes type uh players at the deadline we'll see if it has an impact this year against the Lightning team that they did take to seven games and actually outscored them over the course of that seven uh, and actually had an overtime game to close it out in game six, yada, 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 yada. Uh, but they'll, they'll see them again in another uh, entertaining series, no doubt, in the first round. Curtis, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Again, the, the, the podcast is called uh, The Walls Within. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us today. All right, thank you for having me. There's Curtis McElhaney, former NHL goalie, two-time Stanley Cup champion and made a big stop at the end of uh, Austin Matthews' first regular season to get the Toronto Maple Leafs into the postseason, in which, again, they pushed the Capitals to six games, and then they had a decision to make whether they go with the guy who was having NHL success, although long in the tooth and probably not a fixture long-term with the team and Curtis McElhaney, or a guy who was showing promise, who had a, a long runway ahead of him if he was any good, and Garrett Sparks, they chose Garrett Sparks, and that decision was... The wrong one. Because <laughs> Curtis was. was was good after that. And then, you know, not that he was a Vesna Trophy candidate, but he was a contributor um, for a Hurricanes team that made the postseason. And again, was good in the postseason games he started at 35 years of age. Meanwhile, Garrett Sparks is a bad ECHL goaltender now. No, he's still playing good for him. Yeah, he plays for the Solar Bears, the right. former Leafs ECHL affiliate um yeah 885 save percentage down there this year yeah all right shout out to garrett sparks he was a fun interview uh so yeah leafs in new jersey pregame show coming your way at 6 30 tonight Ilya samsonov getting the start and uh sam lafferty uh number two center 
for a team facing Timo Meyer, who's making his home debut. Uh, there was some big NFL news today. Today at 4 o'clock was the franchise tag deadline, and the Ravens did franchise tag Lamar Jackson, but with the non-exclusive tag. The Frenchish tag. It's not. It's franchise-ish, Frenchish tag. Yeah, it makes sense, though. Okay, so uh, under the tag, he's going to make, if he signs it, which he hasn't done, make about $35 bucks. The exclusive franchise tag means that nobody else can talk to him, and he, he would have made over $40 bucks on a one-year deal for this upcoming season. But the non-exclusive one means that he can still negotiate with other teams. Like he's, It's basically like a restricted free agency. And if he signs a, 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 a deal... Um, a tender with a, another team, the Ravens have choices to make. Either they can match it or they can let him walk and they get a compensation of two draft picks, which means this kind of feels like, to me, Blake, a Sebastian Ajo situation from a couple of years ago when it comes to the Hurricanes who could not figure it out with Ajo. He signed in restricted free agency a a qualifying offer, an offer sheet with the Montreal Canadiens, which would, like had a, a big signing bonus that they were hoping the Hurricanes wouldn't pay. But Hurricanes immediately said, thanks for doing our negotiating for us. They signed him to that. And then, lo and behold, he, he stayed a member of the Carolina Hurricanes. Feels like that's what the Ravens are doing here. There, there are a few complications here. And, and the NBA has had something similar where there used to be the Omar Ashik and Jeremy Lin style uh, offer sheets that you know, were were pretty predatory and you'd structure them in a certain way to try to dissuade the team from matching them. Uh, now, in the NBA, there was no compensation going back, so that was especially problematic, and they have since uh, take, they've ironed that out. It's called the Gilbert Arenas provision, which shockingly does not refer to the John Morant situation. Yeah. Um, this is interesting. Like, the franchise tag in general is fairly straightforward, and, and I don't... You know, I, I think it's an interesting CBA wrinkle. You know, the ja my Jaguars use it on Evan Engram, which is, you know, they frame that as, well, it's another year to build the relationship and negotiate a longer-term extension. The three running backs who got one today, I think it's probably more of a, yeah, you're good, but we don't want to give long-term money to a running back, so we'll just roll this through. The Lamar Jackson one is especially interesting because of what he's seeking, and that's a fully guaranteed contract. He wants that 250 locked in. What I think the Ravens are betting on here, I don't. I really would be surprised if there's any scenario in which they let Lamar Jackson go for two first-round picks. That's like a franchise-altering quarterback and the face of your franchise. To let him go for two first-round picks is way too light. What I think they're betting on is that because of market factors and wink-wink factors between ownership around the league that no one else is going to come to Lamar Jackson with a fully guaranteed contract. Yeah. And what that... They're showing him that. And what that will put, you know, the position that puts us in is like, sure, Lamar Jackson could go out there and sign a $250 million contract that has pretty typical quarterback guarantee structures. I don't think that's a question. I think the Ravens match that in a second, and they're very, very thrilled about it because I don't... And I don't think Lamar Jackson would be super happy about playing this year out on a one-year, $32 million contract um, with no long-term guarantee, right? So I think what the Ravens are doing here are betting, whether because of market things or because no owner wants to set the precedent that star quarterbacks now get fully guaranteed contracts. Like, you want to be in those ownership meetings and you're the guy who made that the the precedent that everyone else is going to have to follow? Haslam's don't care, apparently, but yeah. I But I think that's the bet here. Yeah. from the Ravens is that no one else will do that 
And then whether that leads to someone giving Lamar Jackson uh, an offer that is heavily guaranteed, but gives the Ravens the ability to match that and then say, well, we didn't guarantee you the whole thing. You went out and signed this or Lamar Jackson comes back to the negotiating table, having seen that no team is going to offer the full guarantee. And then that kickstarts a, a new round of negotiations internally where maybe you can work something out and the the Ravens budge a little bit on where they maybe, were Maybe, but he has another card to play here, right? And the only guy that's fully played it for an entire season was Le'Veon Bell. But yeah, you, you're not obligated to, to show. In fact, you don't have to sign your franchise tag until like before game one of the regular season. So he can miss all of, of minicamp, all of training camp, and then show up. You know, <laughs> I am sure it's not like 30 seconds before kickoff of, of week one. But I like, think that's a much more complicated thing to do as a quarterback where not only is the, you know, the, the level of learning the playbook and your personnel and things like that, but also the leadership component that you have to have that room behind you and, and that huddle behind you. I think it's a lot harder to do as a, as a quarterback than it is as a running back. Um, I also think that, I don't know. I think this is much more about the guarantee amount and yeah. changing the way star level quarterbacks are paid in terms of structure. Like, I, I think this is about more than Lamar Jackson. Uh, I don't say that to make him out to be Kurt Flood or, or a yeah, martyr yeah, yeah. or anything like that. But I do think that this is bigger than this one negotiation. And it's going sure. to be fascinating to watch. It's going to be fascinating to watch the collusion Dude, and uh, between th- owners. And yeah, I, I he think he doesn't have an agent. Also, he's acting as his own representation, which is like another wrinkle in all of this, that he is he's doing all this on his own and 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 putting himself on the line and his potential earnings on the line and his potential career and his reputation it, it should be said as well a guy that more than a few talking heads sh- said should have been playing in the postseason game against the Bengals that Tyler Huntley almost won with a horrible stat line and the only reason they didn't win that game might have been his fumble on the goal line yeah this is a guy yeah, that they, has a lot to lose yeah but I, if I'm that guy I'm also sitting there and saying yeah you win that playoff game with me yeah, maybe we win a Super Bowl. And that's a that's a hell of a negotiating chip. Dude, that's it. Because, yeah. Okay, apparently the Falcons are out, and, and we'll see what other teams oh, line up. That and- was the other part of this, is that immediately there's a big round of reporting of every team texting the beat reporters and the Nashville yeah. guys that they're out on Lamar Jackson. Like, if you wanted to... Look, if it walks like collusion and yeah. smells like collusion and talks like collusion, uh, look, it's, it's maybe not that, but I... I would be fascinated to hear behind closed doors what the talks between ownership groups have been like about this specific precedent that could get set. Okay, so yeah, it like has he won a Super Bowl? No. Has he had the overwhelming postseason success? No. But he's an MVP, and and for I don't know, twenty eight franchises in the NFL, that's probably too many. Twenty five at the very least, he would change everything for you, and and maybe one of the other choose to drop is this whole jets aaron Rodgers thing who apparently they've loaded up the private jet uh the pj <laughs> they've loaded up the pj including owner woody johnson they're going to california to meet personally with aaron Rodgers, which would lead you to believe that this is only a matter of time before he is giving the okay for the packers to trade him to the jets but then you see stuff like i saw Schefter today talking about there was some belief earlier on uh, or it was late last week or over the weekend, some within NFL circles actually believed that Aaron Rodgers might actually hang him up. But if the Jets are left hanging here, because the Jets need a quarterback, the Jets are like ready-made to win 
today, mm-hmm. right? Like with just Dude, that defense was ridiculous last year, and they were quite good overall with poor quarterback play. If they just had average quarterback play, like you're talking about a, a team that's obviously in the playoffs, if not competing with the big boys in the AFC, and Lamar Jackson is more than just an average quarterback, and Aaron Rodgers, I mean, has the potential to be more than an average quarterback. But yeah, you could see a scenario in which the Jets get their fans all juiced up for the potential of massive change at that position. Aaron Rodgers says, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to go back and make my whatever $60 million this year that the Packers signed me to, or I'm going to wave goodbye and and see if it's not too late to go host Jeopardy, uh, that the Jets are left with no backup option, like Jimmy it's, G, like I... I it, Baker Mayfield, Carson Wentz, like that's the Lamar J- Jackson, Jacoby Brissett. Yeah, the, Lamar Jackson is a, a thousand times better than any of those guys. Like if there was one team that would have their backs against the wall and be forced to sign Lamar Jackson to a deal that did guarantee him more than $200 million, it might be the Jets. The other thing is, there's always Tom Brady in the banana stand. No, there's not. There isn't, though, really. There could uh, be. <laughs> all right. Uh, also, tonight is... Uh, can I be honest with you for a second? Yeah, please do. I thought t- tonight's World Baseball Classic game between Cuba and the Netherlands was 11 o'clock in the morning today. And I was all geeked up to watch baseball uh-huh. at 11 in the morning. But You it's don't a- know your time zones, eh? <laughs> it's, it's 11 tonight. Aw, honey. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of Super Bowls, the Super Bowl of, of you know, remember a guy in Major oh, yeah. League Baseball? Jair Jurgens. Former all-star, like one of the top pitching Triple prospects. Triple J, Jer- Jens. Yeah, uh, in, in all of baseball for the Atlanta Braves, he's uh, it's not yet 40, uh, but he's pitching for Team Netherlands. Um, who else is there? Chiron Martis, who didn't have the, the, that great of a career, but he was in the major leagues for a while. Josh Palacios, who was a, a Blue Jay at one point. They, their whole infield is just like guys who have been around a lot like they they do have pieces it, it should be pretty fun uh vladimir ba- valentine um didi gregorius Xander Bogarts both, is there. both of the profars yeah i didn't realize there was uh, another profar yeah, both the scope yeah. brothers also <laughs> the middle infield scopes up the middle and, and profars on the corners maybe yeah so realish uh baseball starts tonight on sportsnet by the way uh 11 o'clock all right time now for last call Brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Leafs, Devils from New Jersey, and it is the Devils favored at home. Minus 134 in Timo Meyer's debut. No John Tavares, no Ryan O'Reilly, of course. Leafs plus 115. Austin Matthews, minus 113 to score a goal. William Nylander, plus 155. Mitch Marner, plus 255. And, uh, oh, some WVC futures. How about uh, this Cuban team? Plus 3,000 to win the World baseball classic yon moncada playing for uh, team cuba tonight and that was last call brought to you by bet rivers it's a whole new game same lafferty number two center expectations tonight i have none all right pp2 also yeah see you tomorrow